You know, I live in the United States for 30 years. I know. And me too. I think most people <laughs> in the U.S., just like most people everywhere, are good people. They're just trying to live their lives, uh, do well for themselves and their family. Yeah. And and the, the only reason they have all this distorted view about China is what they have been fed from a very early age by their media, you know, like if they feed a very distorted view of China. So I try to provide like antidote to that. So why is China's policy to not have any acts, no strings attached, as you as you put it before, when they're involved in the economic development of underdeveloped countries? Well, China is there to do business. I mean, China's policy is basically like, you know, we don't care if we have ideological differences or political difference. Let's just sit down and do business. Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. My name is Jason Smith. Today we have a very special guest. Carl Jaw is host of Silk and Steel podcast, and his YouTube channel, at Carl Jaw, covers a wide range of topics. Carl is a giant on Twitter with 117,000 followers and 20,000 more on YouTube and several other channels as well. Carl has been interviewed on Australian media, CGTN, by George Galloway, and more. Welcome to The Bridge, Carl Jaw. Thank you, Jason. I would just wanted to ask you, because this is my own research, what is the easiest way to find you? Where do you want people to go when they're looking for you? Well, um, you, you already mentioned Twitter. I am a prolific shit poster. So that's <laughs> where uh, I most frequently post. Uh, I almost, I pretty much stopped posting on Facebook because uh, mm. uh, the, the recent changes in the Facebook policy has basically unusable. Everything I get posted will be marked as a spam several days later. Wow. So I have my Twitter, just my handle is Carl Zah, and my podcast is hosted on patreon.com where I run the Silk and Steel podcast focused on everything China, history, politics, and culture, uh, where I also do a chronological retelling of the Chinese history hmm. all the way from beginning. I believe I'm like the most comprehensive chronological Chinese history podcast in the English language medium, mm. I believe. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Do you have a background in history? Is that what got you into that? Um, actually, no, I just love history. I, you know, I did not mm. go to mm. college for history. I, my training is actually electrical engineering. But oh, wow. uh, every, every <laughs> since uh, every since I was a small child, when I was uh, six year old, I think my dad bought me as a birthday gift, like the dynastic chart of China, mm. uh, listing out each dynasty. And I, I was just totally fascinated by it. And ever since I've become a lover of Chinese history. Well, I think all the parents out there are ordering posters as we speak <laughs> <laughs> to put up in their kids' background. So uh, could you give us a little bit of an introduction to all of the kinds of topics that you cover on Silk and Steel? For, for our listeners. Oh, you know, pretty much uh, everything China related. Uh, my, I, I am more a history person. I, I like to talk mm -hmm. about Chinese history, whether, whether ancient or modern. Uh, but more recently, because of the U.S.-China tension mm. um, that's mostly driven by the policy of United States government, mm -hmm. there's a lot more demand for geopolitical content. So I do cover that as well. You know, we, I talk about the chip war. Mm -hmm. um, I talk about, you know, what is driving the U.S. policy toward China. 
how is the situation evolving on the ground. So, and I also like to give people um, just kind of like the China from ground up. That's why I interview people like um, Jerry Gray uh, and uh, other Western expats mm -hmm. who are long-term uh, residents of China and who knows China inside mm -hmm. out, but also, you know, has a Western perspective on things. So, uh, I just try to mm. get everything, uh, you know, because right now there's such information deficit. Mm -hmm. Deficit. Mm -hmm. It's more like uh, there's such a campaign of media disinfo on China in the mainstream media, mm -hmm. English mm -hmm. language media. So that's why I felt compelled to speak up, to add my own voice and add the voices of other people who I know who have experienced China firsthand. Mm. You know, I, I feel the same way oftentimes about trying to provide more even information. One thing I saw yesterday on a TikTok video, someone went and they interviewed 10 or 20 Americans in America, and they asked them to name three cities in China, and almost none of them could do it. So my question now since yesterday is, are we too verbose? Are we too out there in our discussion that we're missing the vast majority of Americans and being able to inform them? Because maybe sometimes we assume they know a lot more about China than most Americans actually do. Well, I never assume, Jason, you know, <laughs> when you make assumption, you know, you make an ass yeah, out of yeah, you yeah. and umption. So I, <laughs> I, I, that's why I never assume. Um, and, and I, you know, most Americans, you know, can't probably can't even find China on a map. Mm -hmm. That's why I always try to start from basics. Mm -hmm. I actually would go on to argue that, um, you know, why would American, a lot of criticism about how Americans don't know geography, don't know about mm -hmm. countries outside their border. I like to argue the other way. Like, why should the Americans know where Taiwan is, for example, because mm -hmm. uh, the, the only reason they should care is the mainstream media is trying to tell them that U.S. needs to spend blood and treasure defending Taiwan, supposedly from the mainland China threat, mm. right? When most average Americans' primary concerns are domestic issues, you know, why should they even know about other countries mm -hmm. uh, when, um, you know, U.S. shouldn't be halfway around the world getting into other people's business to, to begin with. Mm -hmm. It also shows from kind of the ignorance and lack of understanding the average Americans even know about this place. U.S. foreign policy is not driven by public anyway. It's it's driven by a very small circle of foreign policy elites. Mm. And and so, so there's a disconnect. My own amount of effort to put in mm. to try to cover China is only to spread awareness, to counter the mainstream media propaganda mm. that's sometimes straight raid out from the U.S. State Department. Right. To the to the average American, because I you know I live in United States for thirty years. I know, and me too. I think most people <laughs> in U.S. just like most people everywhere are good people. They're just trying to live their lives, uh, do well for themselves and their family. Mm, yeah, and and the, the only reason they have all this distorted view about China is what they have been fed from a very early age by their media, you know, like if they feed a very distorted view of China. So I try to provide like antidote to that. Mm. But I agree, there's a vast, vast ignorance in U.S. And to add to that ignorance, you have all these, uh, uh, 
you know, basically psyops that conducted by U.S. Yeah. Uh, various U.S. government agencies. It sometimes it feels like an uphill battle, but I feel it's something that that needs to be done in, especially in today's world when U.S.-China relations mm-hmm. is probably one of the the world's most important relationship. Mm-hmm. And right now, the the government, the U.S. government, the people in charge, the U.S. ruling elite are screwing things up so badly. Mm. People in U.S. should know that. They should know that mm. their government is failing them. Most people know their government is failing them in the U.S., they, but they, they just don't know how much in terms of like foreign policy toward China because many like you say many people don't know about China they sometimes they just they they know how much the US government is failing them on domestic front because people in US yeah. they you know they understand the American context it's it's a lot hard they don't have health care they don't have social security is failing those kinds of things that directly impact them they seem more aware but they don't seem aware that banning chi- certain kinds of microprocessors to China which just means China will eventually make them itself, which means that America will lose a market share. But I want to kind of change the topic a little bit. I personally am very interested in China's, I guess, Belt and Road Initiative. I guess it's not really China's now. It's like the 150 members Belt and Road Initiative. But before we get there, I know you're a huge fan of history. Can you tell us a little bit about what is the ancient Silk Road that this is based off? Okay, so... The term Silk Road actually is a very recent invention. It came from hmm. uh, the 19th century. A, a German explorer, um, Ferdinand Rick hmm. von Richthofen, uh, when he visited China's northwestern region, he coined the term Silk Road to describe the various trade routes that connected China to Europe in the ancient times. Uh, and Ferdinand has actually more famous nephew, the, uh, that's uh, Manfred, Von Richthofen, the the famous uh, Red Baron, uh, German ace in mm-hmm. World War One. Wow. Yep. So, but the but there's not one road. There's actually multiple linkages that link the ancient Chinese civilization to the other parts of the world. You know, mm. one of the most common misconceptions about ancient China is like isolated mm. civilization that's kind of sit in the wilderness by itself. Mm. But it's not true because there has always been goods and ideas flowing across uh, many directions. You know, for example, mm. Buddhism travel on the Silk, ancient Silk Road from ancient India to China. And technology flew other way. Paper making travel from China to Central Asia and where it's been picked up by the Arabs who then further propagated to mm. to the West, to Europe and onwards. And and so on and so forth. Gunpowder printing, all the same. The steel plow. Yes, yes. The steel plow that went from China to Europe that triggered the uh, agricultural revolution mm. in, uh, in the more recent times. And that actually enabled Europe to have the where we draw have the resources mm. to power industrial revolution um so these are uh these are not new you know sometimes we talk mm-hmm. about globalization 
1.0 or globalization 2.0, mm-hmm. like it's modern phenomenon. What we're actually seeing is like 2000s iteration of globalization. There have been many, many iteration of globalization that have gone before us. Like Silk Road is just more like a concept to describe this ancient linkages that link China, whether via land or via sea, to the other civilization centers of the world. So I guess it was 2013, Xi Jinping pr- proposed a modern Silk Road. The Belt and Road Initiative, I think it was called One Belt, One Road at that time. Could you tell us a little about what is this project and what does it seek to accomplish? Okay. So what Xi Jinping has done is to formalize in uh, in words what China was actually doing in uh, many of the global south, mm. even before this. Uh, what happened is mm. uh, around 2008, when the great, great financial crisis hit, much of the developed economy in the West, mm-hmm. China saw what happened and they saw the export market is drying up. Mm-hmm. But China has built up this immense amount of capacity in the uh, since the days of opening and reform. And those capacity mm-hmm. were directed then inwards to build the world-class infrastructures mm-hmm. that China now is famous for, uh, high-speed trains, roads, bridges, etc., but this, in this process, China has created many world-class companies, corporations mm-hmm. that's uh, uh, specialized in building infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? Um, Gajoba. Right. And, and exactly, Gajoba, like the, the, the big hydroelectric dam on the Yangtze River, and also the Three Gorges Dam, for example. Mm-hmm. And with China bringing with mm-hmm. these uh, extra industrial capacity, what China saw was there's a need in much of the global south for development inf- infrastructure. And so the Belt and Road Initiative mm-hmm. ties everything together. You know, China could leverage its immense amount of mm. foreign currency reserves, which it accumulated from um, trade with mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. with United States, for example, um, through the trade surplus. But mm-hmm. again, these uh, Chinese foreign currency reserves are mainly denominated in U.S. US dollars, and as we all know, yeah. <laughs> according to the former chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve, Neil Cash Carey, he said the Fed Reserve have infinite amount of money supply. Right. You know, he just admitted in uh, in public that U.S. can just print money whenever he pleases. Well, I think they're they're debating making a trillion dollar coin. It's <laughs> ludicrous. I mean, we we're getting very ridiculous territory, and and China don't want to be holding the bag of all these uh, paper IOUs. Mm. So they decide to invest their foreign currency reserve into more productive investment. They invest into creating ports, infrastructures in places like mm-hmm. Africa, in Southeast Asia, in West Asia, in Europe. And what that will do is multiple things. First, it allows, it provides an outlet for Chinese mm. industrial capacity that has been built up uh, through the decades. And two, it also allowed China to invest productively mm. its, its foreign currency reserves. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. 
listening to the bridge. So I think another part of that is also if China de- helps develop the developing world, there'll be more consumers for products that China is manufacturing. What what else do you think is being accomplished by the Belt and Road Initiative? Oh, exactly. I, I was going to get into that um, because it, it by building infrastructure in uh, in the global south, it it creates demands for more manufactured Chinese goods. So uh, China is investing uh, in productive capacity. China is exporting productive capacity. So the Chinese bank is loaning money for um, for project that gets bid on by Chinese construction companies uh, using Chinese equipments by Chinese uh, equipment companies. And the develop, the developing world gets ports, they get railroad, they get roads, they get they got power plants. So this is what China mean by win-win situation. Uh, there's there's a, a business every everyone, and the aggregate uh, result of this is more co- global connectivity, which in terms create more demands for trade. And because China is the world's number one trading power, this uh, it creates demand for Chinese manufactured goods. So, so this is net positive for everyone, and and this is what China has committed to, and they spend upwards of a trillion dollars uh, into the Belt and Road Initiative, um, you know, the, whereas the U.S. is spending equivalent, if not more, on uh, waging wars across the continents. I think this is why right now we're seeing so much uh, propaganda coming up from the Western MSM on Belt and Road Initiative to paint this as something bad, as some sort of nefarious Chinese debt trap uh, diplomacy, so-called, because, you know, what they're really saying is all these uh, African nations, <laughs> South East Asian nations, they should really go to um, IMF and World Bank, right? Um, from what I understand, the difference is the IMF and the World Bank have something called the Washington Consensus, which has been so named by people who are part of this Washington Consensus, where they seek to deregulate industry industries uh, and privatize parts of governments. So say, say in a particular African country, South American nation, there is is uh, certain forests that are national forests. The IMF and the World Bank, uh, in giving loans in tranches, in each tranche, they'll say, okay, you need to deregulate this market or privatize this market. And one of the things that China does in the Belt and Road Initiative in giving similar loans to the IMF is that China does not seek to interfere in the internal economic and political uh, situations of these nations. So if I am a nation and I'm developing, if the difference is if I take a loan out from the IMF, they're going to ask me to change the internal structure of my economic and political reality for the people and for my government. Whereas China will just say, we'll help you build a bridge. And that means we're going to help you build a bridge. And yeah, you may owe two or 3% to China, or you may may owe two or 3% to the IMF or World Bank. But the difference is China is not seeking to micromanage the internal affairs of recipient countries. Would you agree with that assessment? Oftentimes uh, in exchange for the Chinese build roads, ports, uh, Etc. Many of these uh, global South nations are using uh, revenue sharing uh, arrangement with, their, for example, using mining rights or use collateral. It's use their natural resource revenue as collaterals for the loan. Um, so I, I don't know what pundits are expecting. I mean, this is just in terms of any kind of uh, business uh, business agreement, right? I mean, to buy a house, you need to have to when you 
you ask a loan, the bank for a loan to buy a house, for example, you need to provide collaterals. This is just a part of of doing business. And as you say, China is not uh, China. China practice a non-interference foreign policy, which means uh, China is just here doing business. It's not like United States or a European government is trying to impose terms on their bank loans. And this is what they don't like about Chinese loans is because the Chinese loan is so-called no string attached. And now the African nations and the Southeast Asian nations, they have an alternative to the IMF and World Bank. Um, if anything, you know, competition, you know, competition is good. Now, now the, the African nations have a choice on which one to get the best terms. However, you know, a lot of these uh, media narrative about the so-called Chinese debt diplomacy, the, the underlying premises is that African leaders and African governments do not know what's in their best interest. You know, it's these mm. people who write for the Wall Street jur- Journal or New York Times really know what's in the best best interest of the African. Um, I think that's that's ludicrous. I mean, it totally denies yeah. the agency to the people in the global south. And to imply that somehow these uh, these pundits who sit in the office in Washington or, or New York somehow know more about what's in the best interest of African is paternalistic to say the least. Mm. I mean, I mean, I, 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 I think there's a, also a tinge of racism there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it looks to me, based on my knowledge of the history of the IMF and World Bank, which and I'm not trying to say are not useful, there may be places because, you know, like you said, the agency of leaders in these developing nations sometimes do choose loans from IMF or World Bank or, you know, uh, Paris Club, all of these other organizations. So maybe there is a place for them. But it also looks like IMF and World Bank came into existence immediately after global independence movements. So at the same time as African nations were getting their independence from their former colonial lords, they were at the IMF and World Bank basically came into existence and created similar structures that existed in colonialism using Africa and other underdeveloped nations as sources for raw materials so that those materials could be processed by the former colonial centers, Europe and America, to sell those goods at inflated prices back to the underdeveloped world. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. You're listening to The Bridge. But I want to pivot a little bit, and because I saw that you did a few posts on the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, this connects uh, Gwadar, the deep water port on the coast of Pakistan, to Western China. Uh, what are the advantages for China? What are the advantages for pa- Pakistan? What is the purpose of all of this uh, infrastructure? Right. So CPEC, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, is one of the flagship projects of the BRI. China is investing uh, tens and if not hundreds of billions of dollars into Pakistan. Pakistan into building roads, bridges, power plants, a uh, basic infrastructure that uh, the goal is again multifold. Uh, one is to help prop up the Pakistan economy. This will bring stability into the South Asia in the subcontinent and 
because China want a stabilizing neighborhood. Pakistan is neighbor of China. On the other side, because Pakistan is connected to China's Xinjiang region, development and stable uh, economic prosperity of Pakistan will have a spillover effect into uh, Xinjiang region of China. It, it also helps Xinjiang to develop by making this extra connection uh, to the outside world. And the the road, as you mentioned, the, uh, it leads to the Pakistani port of Gwadar. It's Gwadar is set very close to the strategically uh, located Persian Gulf. Gwadar is almost at the mouth of the Persian Gulf. And China currently imports most of its energy from the Middle East. Uh, China is one of the largest importer of the Middle East oil and gas. And most of the Chinese energy ex- uh, import come from, um, is carried on the ocean yes, through the streets of Malacca up the South China Sea into the Chinese ports. But the U.S. Navy made very clear that Street of Malacca is a choking point. They will leverage uh, against China in a scenario of war. U.S. Navy threatened to choke off China's energy supply. So by developing Gwadar, a port on near the mouth of Persian Gulf, and to potentially build a pipeline from Gwadar all the way across Pakistan, all the way feeds into China's Xinjiang region in the West, China bypassed the critical choking point of Malacca Strait. Uh, this is what the U.S. calls China's the stream of pearl strategy. So instead of one single choking point when where U.S. Navy can just park their ships, now there are many connective connection points China have the, with the rest of the world. And it will be impossible for U.S. Navy to spread. In the U.S. Navy will have to spread itself very thin, try to choke each individual points of connection. So the Belt and Road Initiative is not just um, has an economic impact. It also has a strategic design. Uh, the, the goal is to bypass that choking point at Malacca Strait and to have many different other points of contact for China to connect with the rest of the world. Wow. Okay. So, you know, there are a lot of overland. So that this, what we're talking about with Guadar is the maritime Silk Road, infrastructure and logistics for ports that move through ocean bodies. But there's also the overland Silk Road, which are a series of rail lines that move from China through Russia and Kazakhstan to Eastern and Central Europe. I understand that shipping things over water is cheaper. So why all of the rail across the world island? Right. So it's true. Uh, shipping always cheaper than, than overland traffic. However, especially if you ship like a low cost commodity like sand, right? You, you, it's definitely cheaper to, to ship on, on big uh, commodity freighters. However, for time-sensitive manufactured goods such as laptops or cell phones, which China manufacture a lot, uh, rail does become competitive because it can. It's faster. It's faster, and mm-hmm. it's also cheaper than air. Mm-hmm. So there is a spot for uh, rail traffic. You know, it's just one additional. Um, it's not supposed to replace mm-hmm. the ocean uh, traffic. It's not supposed to replace the seaborne trade. China is still the number one, uh, world's number one uh, sea trading power. But the the land link complements to whatever linkage China have currently. Uh, because mm-hmm. for for example, a lot of the, one of the strategy for China to develop its interior, because when China started open and reform, uh, most of the industry were concentrated on the East Coast. And people would migrate from inland provinces like Sichuan or Gansu to places like Shenzhen in Guangdong and to work in the factories over there. 
there. What China has is tried to do in the last 10 years to, to try to balance and distribute this development to the rest part of China to help with poverty alleviation effort in the inland China, to build up the capacity inland China. So that's when we see uh, Apple, for example, Apple iPhone plants gets built in the middle of China, uh, uh, in, I think in Henan. And then you have iPhones uh, are being built in, um, you have uh, laptops being built in Chongqing, for example. And all these inland cities manufacturing centers then will be linked by rail to Europe through mm. this uh, the Belt part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and as like I said, for these uh, more expensive electronic products, rail is actually competitive uh, versus water traffic. So I'm I'm trying to understand this actually. So is the reason that electronics are time sensitive because maybe? All of the Huawei's sell out in, in Belarus or something. And then it's like, oh, we need more right now because that's the sale is happening. Well, I mean, the ocean shipping takes a lot longer uh, with the electronics. You know, six months is a long time. <laughs> you're, yeah, so. you're, wow. you're already due for upgrade after six months. So you want to <laughs> get to the market as soon as possible. Right. So uh, you don't want you don't want it to have your iPhone sitting on a ship for like a month on the water. listening to The Bridge. What is, you know, China does have a policy of non-interference in the internal affairs of other nations. Could you elaborate on your uh, understanding of why China has this policy? Let me give some background really quickly. We were talking about the Washington consensus. There are economists in Washington, and I, I don't agree, but I'm just trying to kind of lay it out there, who believe that these liberalizing policies, or at least they claim they believe that these liberal policies that they sort of foist on developing countries will facilitate the uh, growth of those economies where they're investing money. So why is China's policy to not have any acts, no strings attached, as you as you put it before, when they're involved in the economic development of underdeveloped countries? Well, China is there to do business. I mean, uh, China's policy is basically like, you know, we don't care if we have ideological differences or political difference. Let's just sit down and do business. I mean, mm. uh, it's a very sensible policy. Uh, but China do have uh, have a long formulated non-interference policy in their uh, foreign policy goals. You know, this this dates all the way from to 1950s when um, when Zhou Enlai has formulated the five principles of coexistence. It's based on the respect for sovereignty. One of the uh, main tenets of sovereignty is you don't interfere in other people's, in other countries' affairs. And, you know, that's something that U.S. no longer, well, U.S. never really believed in because that limits the reach of the empire. But uh, China does, uh, is very strong um, believer in sovereignty, given the particular Chinese history in the last uh, couple hundred years. And so China understands that the importance of sovereignty and that you respect mm. other nations' choice, you know, in their own implementation of their own national policies. But in the end, I mean, that I think what makes Chinese policy attractive is, you know, forget about everything else. Let's do business. I mean, that, that I mean, like right. how that's just very pragmatic and sensible. And, uh, you know, despite all the effort of Western media trying to tar and feather it, it's, it I, I think it, it, it's just really hard to it's really hard to 
make such a pragmatic policy look bad? I, I mean, I think this reflects <laughs> in the public opinions in the global south, you know, of China versus U.S. You know, China actually enjoy overwhelming positive uh, public opinions in the global south, much to the mm. surprise of maybe readers, uh, readership in the West. I mean, there's a professor at John Hopkins University, Deborah Brotigam. I'm not sure if I'm saying her name right, but she defends exactly what you're saying all the time. She's the foremost U.S. expert on the Belt and Road Initiative, and she's constantly defending China, basically like there is no debt trap. But I kind of want to pivot again and talk a little bit about poverty alleviation in China. 800 million people are lifted out of poverty. Could you tell us a little bit about one or two of the strategies or tactics that China used to accomplish this feat? Yeah, we already touched upon it a little bit. Uh, you know, one is through infrastructure development, uh, you know, just build roads and bridges. And a lot of the uh, areas in China, especially in inland China, the reason they were poor because they were limited by their geography. They, you know, there's not very easily accessible. And by making them connected to this global marketplace, that enables the people to, um, I already talked about kind of the transfer of industrial capacity from the Chinese mm-hmm. coast to more inland. It, it makes sense in many fronts because one, rather than people moving away from their family to go work, uh, you know, a thousand kilometers away, they can work closer to home. And by bringing jobs closer to where it's needed, uh, it not only brings family together, but it also has an added benefit for the business of reducing costs because the land and labor is cheaper in inland China yeah. than it's on the East Coast, right? Because the East Coast has already been built out. And and it just makes it just makes sense. Uh, and, and also it makes sense as a, as a national policy, you know, to just address poverty uh, at a national level. You you can't have hundreds of million people left behind while you know one small tiny section of your society is enjoying the the, the you know the, the first world comfort that happened across many parts of the world but that's not what Chinese government is trying to recreate and this is why uh, Xi Jinping talk about uh, the common prosperity common prosperity is is sharing the wealth across the different layers and different social classes in different geographies of China. So, well, I want to address one or two of the concerns, or not concerns, criticisms of that. So sure. I've heard, and I mean, I have my own reasons why I don't agree with these, but I want to hear yours. Um, one of the criticisms is, oh, it's just they opened the market and this is capitalism bringing wealth to China. How would you address that? Okay, so I I will like to quote Deng Xiaoping. Uh, back in 1980s, Deng Xiaoping says, you know, socialism doesn't mean poverty. You know, if we, if we cannot feed and close our people, if we cannot provide our people with a good living standard and good prospect for the future, then we have failed. You know, to prove the superiority of socialist system to the capitalist system, first of all, we have to provide our people with a good living, right? And and I think China has done remarkably well in that um, aspect. I grew up in China in 1980s. I was born in 1976. So I witnessed first hand the dramatic transformation of China in the last 40 years. There's a reason, there's an overwhelming support among the Chinese population for their government. It's because their government is actually delivering. Is They're delivering in providing a good life and good future for the majority of its citizens. Um, so when people say, oh, no, that's that's capitalism, 
but that's not I mean it's you know I I'm not a like a ideological person I think it's just, the goal of any government mm-hmm. is a effective government a good government is to provide its people with good life and I think the Chinese have government had done a remarkably uh, good job doing that mm. so China brokered peace recently between Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, how is China's role in the world changing? Yeah, that's interesting because as I mentioned, China had a very strict non-interference policy, which instances means China remain a very, keep a very low profile on the international stage. Uh, You know, if people go look at China's voting record in the United Nations, for example, you know, the most oftentimes, even in the instances where where China might have disagreement, China choose abstain rather than outright veto, even though China is one of the five permanent uh, uh, the Security Council member. But the Saudi-Iran peace deal is a major tectonic shift in the Middle East. And China chose uh, at this point to publicly um, host this this meeting in Beijing and help to mediate between the both sides. That showed that China is ready to um, have a more active foreign policy. And this this is a quite contrast from the past. You know, I quoted Deng Xiaoping earlier. Deng Xiaoping also said, you know, uh, keep a low profile and hide hide your strength, right? But I think uh, it's it's too late now for China to hide its strength. I mean, China, Chinese strength is obvious for anyone to see. It, it doesn't make sense to try to keep a low profile and hope nobody notice China has is now a great power. So might as well do something with it. And I think this it's a very positive and very encouraging development that China is taking an active role in the Middle East uh, peace negotiations. And and right now, China is trying to do the same for Ukraine, which, again, many of the Western pundit is pouring cold water um, and even, even uh, saying that China is not qualified to be objective mediator. But I mean, then who is, you know, would that be United States or NATO who is pouring weapons into, into Ukraine? I mean, things are just, you know, we're, we're living in 1984 world where, where war is peace and, and everything is getting turned upside down in the in the mainstream media. I think that that's why actually the mainstream media is actually losing a lot of credibility, not just in China, but, but in U.S. as well, because a lot of the Americans can, can recognize the kind of bullshit that's being piled on. So we are at a very um, critical juncture. We're at a crossroad where the U.S. empire continued to decline and China continued to rise. And I am very hard to see that China taking an active role in uh, peace negotiations. I mean, peace is always good. It's always better than the other alternative than the war. Right. Well, I mean, that's kind of the purpose of this show for uh, our American audience. We hope to help bridge understanding between China and not just America, but the West in general. So I wanted to ask you, you know, we're both a little bit critical of international militancy, which seems to come from the West, from our perspective anyway, how would you say, what steps can China or the United States or the people in China or the people in the United States take to bridge a better understanding between our people and maintain peace and develop more cooperation, participation in the international community? 
Right. Um, the steps have to come from the other side, have to come from U.S. because China is not the one that's pushing for confrontation. China is open for business. Like, you know, China doesn't care. You know, U.S. may have a different way of life or different government structure. You know, China is not going out the world trying to impose the Chinese model on everybody else. There's a common misconception is that China's rise will inevitably means that either the Chinese mode of governance or the U.S. model government. That's not true. It's U.S. that's forcing people to choose. China just want to preserve its own way of life, uh, and it also respect other countries for 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 their own choices. So right now, China still very much would like to continue productive partnership with anyone, including United States. Recently, the U.S. the Chinese uh, new Chinese ambassador to U.S. just made a statement to that effect that he's he hoped that U.S. and China can sit down and working as adults to work into a more productive, cooperative relationship that will benefit the whole world. And he also pointed out the hostile relationship between the two uh, doesn't benefit anyone. And so really, I mean, I, I think the, the ball is now in the court of Washington and in the so-called collective West to come to realization that, uh, you know, coexistence is, is possible with China. It, it doesn't have to be you are either with us or against us. And, you know, that this this basically uh, was the basis of the Sino-American relationship from the days of uh, Nixon visit. You know, at that time, it was the Shanghai communique was about, you you know, preserve while we understand we uh, we agree to disagree, but we we can still you know work on other important issues. And I'm a little bit more pessimistic on, on the government of United States because I feel like now the crazies are running the show. Um, for regular people, I think people to people exchange is very important. Like we're right now talking to each other. I think if uh, more Americans would travel to China, you know, to to see what China is about, to talk to the Chinese people, uh, they will, you know, that will help to cast aside a lot of the common misconceptions. And but hopefully they will also realize it, it, it's foolish. It's foolish to have a confrontational relationship with China. And, and there's no reason for it. And this is my hope that more people will start questioning their government, why they're pursuing on such a such a policy. Well, a lot of the anxiety seemed to come from the, the Trump administration. I'm neither Democrat nor Republican. I'm not trying to throw it out there. But it's only seemed this kind of overt hostility has only existed for the last five or six, seven years. Could this just be a hiccup in our relationship and things improve? Biden administration had a window of opportunity uh, when, when Biden take office and say the Trump administration, that was just a fluke. Now we can we can get back to do business. But <laughs> instead, the, Trump, the Biden administration has doubled down on the Trump policy toward China. I mean, uh, the, the, the sanctions that Biden has levied on China on uh, in, in terms of semiconductors is a lot more severe than whatever Trump ever levied against China. China. So, so right now, to be tough on China is almost a bipartisan issue in Washington, mm. which is un very unfortunate. And um, and and because it's actually hurting even the U.S. companies, U.S. tech companies that's hoping mm. to sell to China to continue because China is one of their biggest market and growing. And now they're being locked out of the Chinese market, not by Chinese government, but by U.S. government policy. And, and that that's why you have the Nvidia founder recently giving the talk that you know once we 
lose China, uh, you know, the Chinese will eventually find a way to uh, innovate themselves and to make uh, make those parts themselves. And but once they do, they're not coming back. They're not com- going to come back to to buy American products. We will then lose the Chinese market forever, which is a very important market. Like there's not any re- replacement China around here. There's only one China. This, you know, this, this giant uh, marketplace. And and if the, it, it will be a huge blow for the American tech companies to lose that that market. And right now, that's what the Biden administration policy it's doing. Um, so you know, I, I just hope people come to their senses. I don't know. I mean, I at this point, I'm I'm fairly pessimistic. <laughs> and but I do hope. I do hope. I, I I like to keep the hope alive, and that that uh, maybe maybe you know something will change. The best military commander is not he who fights a hundred battles and wins every one of them. The best military strategy does not lead to the desiccation of the enemy's capital city. Decoding the art of war will help you understand why there's no art in war and how Sunzi stayed undefeatable using the science of war, with fun stories and insightful breakdown of famous battles. Tune in to Decoding the Art of War on Spotify. Listening to the bridge. Um, you said you mentioned living in the United States for 30 years. I noticed that there is an increase in anti-Asian hate crime. Um, I personally think that it has a lot to do with the anti-China rhetoric that comes from the media and from some of the leadership in Washington and elsewhere. Um, uh, do you think that if China and the United States were able to de-escalate their political tensions or the economic uh, tensions, the trade war, for example, that this kind of anti-Asian hate crimes could also be reduced. Oh, sure. I mean, that most definitely. I mean, people, mainstream media are trying to play down the linkage between the, the anti-Asian hate crime versus the, the U.S. Sinophobic China policy. But for any reasonable person, you can see the, the, the linkage when, you know, a lot of the China, when, when you're making China the enemy, you know, a lot of the Chinese Americans are wearing the face of the enemy. So you are making them the target. And I have a U.S. passport, you know, to my own own advantage to see U.S. and China come to a more cooperative relationship. And one of the reasons I lash out online is because I'm very disappointed in the way things have turned out. But I do I do hope there will be a, a better term for the future because the alternative is, is just too hard to contemplate. You know, a, a confrontation between U.S. and China is potentially ruinous for the whole humanity. So well, that's I have a to hard say, reality. I'm, I'm also very optimistic in terms of I don't think I certainly hope not. It does seem like the United States is out of control, but it I feel like the United States knows that China has an incredible defensive capability. So there's no way that the United States could take actions beyond the trade war, beyond kind of sanctioning individuals or particular companies. It doesn't seem to me like viable that the United States could escalate things beyond the sort of moves against the free market that they've been making. And my feeling is. You say the ball's in Washington's court. I completely agree. My opinion is that if the United States were to reduce some of the trade sanctions, some of the tariffs, China would immediately reciprocate and we would have an instantaneously like de-escalating situation and that it's entirely up to folks in Washington to take those actions and we could end this sort of...
sort of child's play that's been going on for the last few years, like overnight. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. hundred um, percent. The big question, the trillion dollar question is whether the, the leaders in Washington will come to their senses. I want to go back and connect two other things that we were talking about. So we were talking about uh, the end of absolute poverty in China. So with the Belt and Road Initiative, do you think that it's possible that China can replicate some of the model of its own success in other nations? Because beyond just building like a hydropower dam in Laos or something like that, or or the rail that's running through uh, to Guadar from Western, Western China, China's not just building, for example, logistics, it's building in energy. It sends agronomists, professional scientists to other countries. It looks at what kind of things will grow there. It makes recommendations for growing different kinds of produce or rice or offers kinds of technical advice on how to grow, how to increase economic activity. Is it possible that China's record for ending absolute poverty within China's own borders can be replicated elsewhere? What do you think? Well, I will just uh, cite a statistic. Uh, there was a chart of the total GDP growth from 19 1992 to the present. And if you look at the chart, the fastest growing economy, uh, number one is China, of course. Um, mm. Number one is Vietnam. And, I saw that. And if you, yes, I was and very surprised. At, yeah. Vietnam um, is actually, I think, probably closest to China in terms of political culture, government structure, and, uh, you know, the and whole other variety of factors. I think that hopefully that answers your question. Mm. So, yeah, okay. Then there is hope that we're going to see the underdeveloped world, which has spent centuries being underdeveloped by the former colonial powers, come into a kind of modernity of their own and infrastructure, better lives and stuff. I mean, one of the things that I think came out of the Iran-Saudi Arabia deal that I was most happy about was the end of the conflict in Yemen. I think yes. whether whether you're, you know, American uh, hardcore war hawk or whatever, I assume at least most people want what's in the best interest of most other people. Um, people disagree dramatically about how to get there, but I would hope that global poverty, absolute poverty, could be something that ends uh, before I check out anyway. Uh, any last thoughts? Oh, you know, I do have a question for you. This is kind of not political. What happened with your Twitter account? I think a lot of people are interested because you were <laughs> like selling iPads or something for a couple weeks there. <laughs> uh, my Twitter account was hacked for about two weeks and uh, it was I accidentally click on a phishing link and that led to my uh, myself getting locked out of my account. The, the, the hacker took over then, you know, using my Twitter account to, to sell a laptop, laptop scam. And I, I did recover my, my Twitter account um, after two weeks. And it was uh, it was an uphill battle because I couldn't get in touch with a real person when I filed the, the support ticket. I only get automated replies. And it was only what a, a friend of my uh, Daniel Dumbrell, thank you, Daniel, yeah, yeah. Uh, who tracked down a, a real person who worked at the Twitter. Uh, this is very ironic because it was uh, it came about because Matt Walsh got hacked, and, oh, wow. and then Ben Shapiro tweeted about Matt Walsh being hacked. So then we got some action from Twitter. A Twitter person, Ella, actually responded to that that tweet thread, and that's when my friend Daniel Dumbrell, re uh, you know, replied to Ella's, "Hey, can you please take a look at the case of my friend? You know, hack." 
hacker is using his uh, large account to promote laptop scam. So that's how my my um, Twitter account got results. Uh, well, uh, we're glad so to have you. The entire yeah. community was very happy to get you back. The, the, the idea of rebuilding you on another account was was terrifying. Honestly, I saw what was happening to you and I was like, I hope this does not happen to me or other people in our community. So it's good uh, to have you back. Turn on your two-factor uh, authentication. I, yeah, I yeah. did. I did have my two-factor authentication turned on, but it was via text message. And then uh, back then, Elon Musk turned off the two-factor authentication mm. via text message for people who didn't pay for, for Twitter Blue. And mm. uh, so so don't don't use uh, two-factor authentication via SMS. Use a Google Authenticator. And that is much better, much safer. And uh, and uh, Elon, at least, is, has not turned it off <laughs> that, that free option. So do mm. that. I got it. Well, also, I'll keep Daniel in mind if something happens in the future also. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I guess he's going to be the go-to person for anyone who's having a crisis. Um, any last thoughts you wanted to uh, leave with our listeners before we go? Um, maybe I was sounding overly pessimistic in this interview, but I still have great hope for the future. I don't know how it will come about, but I think eventually U.S. and China will have to learn to work with each other and, and to mm. work for the, for the betterment of humanity. So maybe I'll leave it at that. Well, I hope so, too. Thank you so much for joining us, Carl. And uh, if you guys are looking for Carl Jaw, please find Silk and Steel podcast, or you can find him at, at Carl Jaw, C-A-R-L-Z-H-A. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Jason. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.